If you would please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. We continue in our year of the Bible, and we are thankfully in the New Testament now. And we've had all of this year to prepare for our journey through the New Testament, because that's what the Old Testament is. It's a foundation. It is a preparation for us to encounter Jesus Christ and His message of the kingdom of God. Last week we read Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter was confessing that Jesus is that King who would come from the line of David. And that is one of the main themes in Matthew's Gospel. This idea of Jesus as the Son of David as the King who was promised to come and His message of God's kingdom. And we see this theme demonstrated. If you look back at the birth of Jesus, we notice that He already is, is knocking up against the, the kings of this world as Herod is threatened by Him, as we see magi from other countries coming to worship this newborn king of the Jews. We see it as John the Baptist is revealed to be that forerunner of the Messiah, like Elijah, who's come to prepare the way for this coming king. We saw it demonstrated as Jesus resisted temptation in the wilderness and showed that God's kingdom has come and is far greater than Satan and the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is teaching with kingly authority. He's calling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus demonstrates that kingly authority through His miracles and by casting out demons. And then Jesus even sends out His disciples as ambassadors of this kingdom. But in chapters 10, 11, and 12, we begin to see this growing resistance The religious and cultural elites in Israel reject Jesus as their Messiah King. And so from that point on, Jesus begins to adopt a bit of a different approach in His public teaching ministry. He begins to teach the crowds only through parables. Now, what is a parable? Well, a parable is a unique style of storytelling. It's almost like a riddle. Some of them really come across like riddles that we have to try to figure out. And what Jesus is doing in a parable is He's taking two very unlike things and He's comparing and contrasting them. He's taking things that people are familiar with in their daily life, like yeast in dough, or like a a dragnet that's fishing across the Sea of Galilee, and He's comparing those to eternal spiritual truths that the people don't understand. So really, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus used parables to explain the kingdom of God, but we also see that Jesus is using those parables in a way to conceal the kingdom of God. Because while the religious leaders rejected Jesus, those who knew and loved Jesus were confused. He wasn't exactly the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. And at this point in His ministry, Jesus' disciples are probably asking some questions. Well, if Jesus is the Messiah, why all this opposition? If Jesus really is this long-awaited king, then why aren't the religious leaders getting that? Where is his kingdom? When is he going to overthrow Rome and set himself up as the king in Jerusalem? So in Matthew 13, Jesus sets out to answer some of these questions of his followers and explain to them what God's kingdom is really like. But then that raises a whole other set of questions. Why reveal the secrets of the kingdom through riddles? Why use riddles to decode the mysteries of the kingdom? 
Maybe some of you might remember getting in, in your cereal as a kid or in a box of Cracker Jacks a decoder ring. Did anybody ever have a decoder ring? Yeah, nowadays they, they you know, give you like these red glasses and you look at a piece of paper and all the red, you know, it kind of washes out and you can see the secret message. So kids still have things sort of like that. But we, we love a mystery and we love riddles and we love solving those riddles. But imagine if you got the decoder ring and you had to decode the decoder ring to decode the code. That's kind of what parables are like. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 10. Well, the, the disciples came to him in verse 10 and they asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Why these riddles? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. And then Jesus goes on to explain from Isaiah how the people's hard hearts were keeping them from hearing and understanding God's message. In the previous few chapters, chapters 10 through 12, we see that a lot of people have already made up their mind about Jesus. And they've already rejected Him in their hearts. And we know that even among those who are following Jesus, we can look at other places in the Gospels to discover that their motives aren't exactly pure. In John chapter 6, Jesus accuses the crowd of looking for Him, quote, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So Jesus says, yeah, you're not coming after me to know me or the kingdom. You're coming because you want some more bread to eat. So look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus again says later on, it says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So Jesus' parables were kingdom secrets for believers to understand, but were worded in such a way that the vaguely curious crowd or the doubters and skeptics would not understand. These were kingdom truths for kingdom followers. And as Christians, that includes you and me. Now, these stories can help us today to decode the mysteries of God's kingdom so we can better understand how to pray for His kingdom to come, so that we can better understand how we're to live in this world as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So let's jump right in, and we're going we're gonna to just uh, walk through these parables today. Uh, the parable of the sower is the first one. It doesn't begin like the rest of them do. The rest of these parables begin with a phrase that says, the kingdom of heaven is like. So this parable isn't designed to tell us what the kingdom is like. In fact, in verse 31... Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. That's, that's an example of that. But in the rest of these parables, in this first parable, he doesn't do that. So what he's trying to tell us, not what the kingdom is like, but what the kingdom message is like. What the kingdom messenger is like. Jesus is outlining for us and his disciples the variety of responses people can have to the kingdom of God. So let's look at verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. 
But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now Jesus later on explains to his disciples what this parable means. So let's look at verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So really this parable of the sower or of the soils is a parable about parables. Jesus is telling us how people are going to respond to his message. He's answering the question for the disciples, why are some people rejecting you as the Messiah? So how are some of the ways people can respond to the gospel? Well, for some, the gospel goes in one ear and out the other. They hear it, but they fail to understand the message of the kingdom. It's as if the seed is snatched away before it even has a chance to germinate. Others seem to receive the gospel with joy but it's a shallow commitment. They've not counted the cost of discipleship, and as soon as things get tough, they fall away. They were never truly sincere, and so the seed really never took root. Others similarly receive the gospel, but they allow the worries of this life to choke it out. You know, they're, they're chasing after wealth. They're worried about food and clothing. And so the seed grows into a plant that looks healthy, but it bears no fruit. But finally, there are those people who hear the gospel, they understand the gospel, and their lives are changed by the gospel. They grow, they're healthy, and they bear fruit. Now, as we look at these different responses, notice that the problem in the first three aren't with the sower, nor with his seed. It's the condition of the soil that's the problem. See, Jesus doesn't want his disciples, he doesn't want us to be discouraged when we share the gospel and some don't believe. Or when we look in our church and we see people that look the part of a follower of Christ, their names are on the roll, they've maybe even been baptized, but they fall away, they bear no fruit. Jesus is saying we shouldn't think that the problem is necessarily with us, and it certainly is not with the truth of the gospel message. The problem is the condition of people's hearts. And we can't discount the very active role that Satan, the enemy of God's kingdom, is playing in this world. Jesus makes it very clear in verse 19 when he says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So Jesus' expectation here is that the gospel will go forth. In fact, Matthew ends with a great commission where Jesus sends his followers out to sow the seeds of the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. But Jesus is also expecting that there's going to be a variety of responses to the truth of this message. 
He's expecting that Satan will be actively opposed to it in this world. But let me be clear about something Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying we can lose our salvation. If you look at these four different responses, these four different soils, what sets apart the last type is that the word isn't just heard and received, it is understood. When the gospel is truly understood and implanted in a person's heart, it transforms them and it produces fruit. James picks up on this theme in James chapter 1. He says in verse 21, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. But do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then down in verse 27, he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Ask yourself this morning, have you humbly accepted the word planted in you which alone can save you? See, it's not enough to just be a hearer of the Word. It's not enough just to happen to be soil that the seed falls on. Or even for that seed to take root and start to grow. James says we have to weed out the moral filth and evil that is so prevalent in our lives. That's repentance. Repentance must be a part of saving faith. And the saving faith that we have is the kind of faith that seeks to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. James said religion that is pure and faultless is a religion that lives out the love of Christ. What kind of soil are you? That's the first parable. How have you received and responded to the message of the gospel? But Jesus goes on to tell a second parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And it tells us, about the perseverance of the kingdom. The perseverance of the kingdom. Look with me in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now let's look back up at verse 36. Jesus left the crowd, went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will weed out His kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus in this parable continues this agricultural theme. It's another story about a man sowing seeds in his field. And this parable 
seems to kind of build off of the previous parable. Remember you had the, the seed that, that, that took root, it started to grow, it looked good, but it bore no fruit. And then you've got the, the soil where it's good and the, and the seed takes root, it grows, it's healthy, and it does bear fruit. But for a while, those two different plants were indistinguishable, right? For a time, they look the same. The difference isn't visible until it's harvest time. Now, the particular kind of weed in here, uh, some translations uh, translate it tares. You've heard it, the wheat and the tares. Well, tares weren't just any kind of weed. They were a particular kind of plant that looked just like the wheat until it was time for the heads to be formed. But by then it was too late to pull them up because their roots had become entangled with the roots of the wheat. And you didn't want to lose any wheat, so you would just let them all come up and you would sort it all out in the harvest and, and in sifting uh, the, the wheat from the chaff. You would, you would you know, take care of all of that later. In fact, these weeds were so invasive and so destructive and so you know, costly to farmers that the Roman Empire passed serious laws against uh, people going in there and sowing tares in somebody's wheat field. And you can imagine if you had a rival farmer and you guys didn't get along and you were enemies, he might want to go over there and throw some, some tares out there in your weed, as Jesus says in this parable. So Jesus explains in this parable that he is the sower, the seeds are the sons of the kingdom, his followers, the field is the world, the enemy is Satan, and his seed are, are his, uh, those who stand opposed to Christ, and the harvesters are the angels of the day of judgment. And like the first Parable, this one is meant to answer the growing question in the disciples' minds. Why must the faithful servants of God's kingdom coexist with the evil in this world? And is there any hope of justice and freedom from the evil that surrounds us? Those are good questions. Those are questions we struggle with today. But the hope of this story is that while we are not promised insulation from the evil in this world, there will come a day when God will uproot and destroy the evil of this world. God will someday judge the wicked, and He'll do it with justice and righteousness. Evil and oppression will cease, and the children of the kingdom will be presented to the Father so that we can shine like the sun. Paul describes the day of judgment like this. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But there's also a word of warning for us in this parable as Christians. It is only for the Father to judge in the end who is a wheat and who is a weed. Because for right now, they may be indistinguishable. We may see people we think are wheat and they're weeds. We may see people we think are weeds and they might turn out to be wheat. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be discerning. That's not to say that we shouldn't practice church discipline. Jesus did say we can judge a tree by its fruit, but more often than not, we're judging those trees with logs sticking out of our eyes, aren't we? We need to maintain a dose of humility in our discernment and remember that only God truly knows a person's heart. And this also means that just as we are not insulated from evil, we also should not isolate ourselves from it either. It's so tempting to just kind of write off the culture and write off those people that we, that we don't want to associate with and, and just kind of withdraw into our own little enclaves of people who act and, and look and think like us. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. 
The Pharisees were the ones who withdrew and prayed and thanked God that they were not like other men. That is not how Jesus wants us to be. God means for us to live in the world alongside those who are lost and ungodly and even those who are opposed to His kingdom. Because who knows, that tear living next door to you may eventually turn out to be a wheat in the end. Just think about the Apostle Paul. When he was Saul, I mean, he was the worst tear of them all, wasn't he? Who would have ever imagined but God that he would turn out to be one of the most fruitful wheats of all? That is why we cannot insulate nor isolate ourselves from the lost world around us. We must be a Christ-like influence on everyone we meet, praying for their salvation and sharing the gospel with them that they might be saved. Now, Jesus goes on to tell two small parables about the impact of the kingdom. Look at verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So far, Jesus' parables have seemed a little bit like downers, right? I mean, Jesus isn't sugarcoating the truth. He's telling His disciples that there will be many people who won't respond to the gospel. In fact, in the parable of the soils, only one-fourth of them will. Some will appear to respond, but they aren't sincere and won't really change. And He tells them there will be opposition to the kingdom of God in this world and that we must live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And in both of these parables, Jesus has pointed to the active role that Satan plays in the world. But now Jesus turns to some parables of encouragement. Jesus tells them that while it may seem like the kingdom of God is small and insignificant now, surrounded by enemies with few people responding, don't worry, it's going to grow. Just like a small mustard seed becomes a tree. Just like a little bit of yeast hidden in the dough infiltrates the whole loaf and makes it rise. God loves to start things small. Just go back to Genesis and consider how God began this great rescue plan for the world. He picked an, and he went to an obscure corner of the ancient world, picked an insignificant man named Abram, and from him raised up a country that would be a, a small country that God would use to bless all the countries of the world. Think about how God had a preference for picking the younger brother instead of the older brother. Working with the smallest of tribes. How God loved to take the most unlikely people and use them to be prophets and to be warriors. He chose a shepherd boy to be king. And in the fullness of time when the Messiah came, he didn't come as a valiant warrior king riding on a steed, but a helpless baby born in a feeding trough. And this king wasn't born in the palaces of Jerusalem, but in the sleepy little town of Bethlehem. The mustard seed and the yeast... They represent God's work in our lives, in our church, and in our world. And we may not see what God is doing. And what little action we see may seem slow, it may seem small. But just as you can't see the yeast working in the dough, over time, you see its effect, don't you? It permeates, it ferments, it gives life to the dough, it causes it to rise. When we consider the Great Commission, it can seem daunting, can't it? When we consider the billions of people lost in this world, when we consider the millions of people just in southeast Texas alone that are in such great need, it can be overwhelming. 
It may feel like the odds are never in our favor and the world is working against us. But in the face of all of that, we must not despise the smallness of God's power and grace at work through us. Like that mustard plant, God's kingdom starts out small, but it promises a remarkable harvest. Like the yeast, it has an amazing ability to permeate, to infiltrate, to spread that power, to transform the world around us. God's work may seem imperceptible, at times completely hidden from our sight, but that doesn't make it any less real. God's kingdom is present right here, right now, at work in this church and in this community, leading people to serve and to witness, growing and reviving His church. We just can't always see it. So let these two stories be a source of encouragement. When you feel like nothing is ever going to change, when you feel like the odds are are against you and you're never going to make a difference, don't worry. It's all good. The kingdom often starts out small and hidden, but it's there. It's growing and it's working. Now, the next two parables, Jesus tells only to his disciples. At this point, he goes back into the house where he explains to them the parable of the wheat and the tares. And there he gives them two more parables about their investment in the kingdom. See, these previous two parables focused on God's work, on what God was doing, how he was working his kingdom. They were about what God does. But these next two parables are about what we do about how we respond to God's kingdom work. So look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Each of these two stories tell us something significant about God's kingdom. The first is that it's priceless. It's a valuable treasure. It's a priceless pearl. And secondly, just like the story about the yeast, it tells us that God's kingdom is hidden. Its great value often goes unnoticed. To discover this priceless treasure of God's kingdom, we have to dig deep, don't we? We have to look beneath the surface. But that's the good news of these parables. It's not just that God's kingdom is priceless and hidden, but that it can be found. And even though it's it's of great value, we can obtain it. Notice two ways people can come into the kingdom of God. The first, there are those who kind of stumble upon it. You know, they're just kind of going about their lives, they're working, they're playing, they're loving their family and providing for them. They may not be all that religious, they may not be active in a church, but then by the grace of God, they stumble upon something. It may be that somebody invites them to church. It may be that they hear the gospel presented at a funeral. It may be they pick up a witnessing track at a restaurant. It may be that they encounter some sort of a disaster. I think again about all these people in Houston, Louisiana that have lost everything. And they weren't looking for God. They weren't interested in the things of God. But some Southern Baptist is going to come knocking on their door and say, I'm here to help you mud out your house. And they're going to explain to them why. And lo and behold, that person will have stumbled upon the kingdom of God. And we should pray every day for their salvation. But secondly, there are those people who are actively searching for the things of God. They just haven't found what they're looking for yet. They're they're searching for the truth about life and death. They have questions about eternity. And once they discover the beautiful, life-giving truth of the gospel, 
they're all in. They're willing to sell everything they have to be a part of that kingdom. And that's another beautiful truth of these two short stories, that the kingdom is worth giving up everything to obtain. It is so incredibly valuable, it would be foolishness to not give up everything for it, even our lives. Notice the man in the field sells everything he has with joy to obtain this treasure. Now again... Jesus is not talking about buying our way or working or earning our way into the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is a gift that we receive, not a reward that we achieve. The point here is that our response to this gracious gift of participating in God's kingdom rule and reign must be total. We have to be willing to go all in. We can't go piecemeal. It's not half, there is no dual citizenship with the kingdom of God. Genuine saving faith is a faith that truly embraces and yields itself to God's kingdom, not just acknowledges that it's there as we pass on by. And so the next parable, and I know we're just kind of speeding through this, but when you're trying to cover the Bible in a year, it's kind of what you've got to do, right? Let's look at the next parable. This parable is often dismissed because it's so similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But it's a little bit different. It makes a different point. This next parable tells us about the movement of the kingdom. Look at verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fisherman pulled it up on the shore. Then he sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this parable is similar to the wheat and the tares, because it does tell us that God's people will live in the midst of the lost and the wicked, and that God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. And it tells us that God's realm of activity is the whole world. God isn't restricted just to a temple or to a church building. God is sovereign over all creation, all people, and all kingdoms. What is different is this picture of the kingdom of God as a dragnet, which is like a, it's not like a casting net. It's like this big, huge, vertical wall of net that's just moved through the water and it catches everything in its path. Fish of all kinds, trash, seaweed, dead stuff, you name it, it catches everything. And the kingdom of God is like that. It's this wall that is just sweeping through the world and it's catching all people and it's drawing them all forward to this final day of judgment where God will separate the righteous from the wicked. Imagine that. The kingdom of God like this big net moving unseen through the world. God's kingdom is moving across time, pushing history forward to that final day at the return of Christ. And people may not see God's kingdom work in their lives. They may live in denial of God's kingdom. But all the while, while the kingdom gets closer to them, maybe, you know, imagine that net touching the back of a fish and scaring it, darting away. People, when God gets too close, they get scared and they run away. And they think they're free of God. They think they're living in freedom. But they are still caught in God's net. There is no escape. The day of reckoning will come. God's kingdom will eventually engulf everyone who ever lived. And someday, as Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, will you bow and confess freely as a citizen of the kingdom, or will you be forced to bow as an enemy subjugated by the kingdom? Will you confess Christ as Lord because you know Him as your Savior? Or will it be the last thing you say as you're cast into the lake of fire in judgment? And Jesus concludes with a final parable. It's almost like a a proverb. But this verse gives us one last clue to decoding the mysteries of God's kingdom. And it's that as followers of Christ, we are curators of the kingdom. Look at this verse 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. I have to laugh when I look at that, knowing the disciples as we know them. Did they really? I mean, did, did they really or were they just saying that, right? He said to them, therefore, okay, if you guys get it, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Verse 51 tells us that Jesus does desire for us to understand the truth about His kingdom. Yes, it's a mystery, but it's a mystery that God wants us to decode and understand and live our lives accordingly to. Verse 52 goes on to say that we are also to be stewards of the mysteries of the kingdom. We're to dispense them to the lost who so desperately need to hear the truth of the gospel. Imagine if you inherited a vast treasure, a great estate, and many of the items were ancient. Some of them were new. All of them were valuable. And you had been appointed not only to keep these treasures, but to disperse them to those who needed it. That's us. We have been entrusted with the treasure of God's kingdom and with the good news that it is coming. And that treasure includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we're reading through the Bible together this year, we've finished the Old Testament, you've discovered, I pray, the great value, the great worth of the Old Testament to point us forward to Christ, to prepare our hearts to know how desperately lost we are and in need of His grace. So as we share the Gospel with people, let's not neglect the whole counsel of God's Word. The story of how God was so faithful to Israel, despite their unfaithfulness to Him. Let's allow the Holy Spirit take all of Scripture and illuminate it for our hearts to help us to live as citizens of His kingdom and to share that good news with others. Now, I know this is a lot to digest this morning. My prayer is that you will meditate on these parables this week and on the other parables that we'll be reading as we about to finish Matthew and we'll start Mark and then we'll go on into Luke and John together. But today, I want, to, I want you to be encouraged That no matter your life situation, no matter what is happening in the world, God's kingdom is here, it is now, and it is coming in fullness when Christ returns. Yes, there are those who oppose it. Yes, there are those who are going to reject Jesus. But the kingdom of, of God is at work. Even when you can't see it. And in the end, the harvest will be glorious. Are you of God's kingdom? Have you heard and understood the gospel and responded to its saving message? Whether you've stumbled upon it by accident, whether you've been searching for it your whole life, will you give your life to the kingdom of God today?
And as a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, will you be a good steward of this immeasurable treasure? Will you share this good news with those around you? We are not just the seed. As Matt said earlier, we also have responsibility to be a sower. And we are to be going out into this community and into this world and sowing the seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You come as God leads you this morning to give your life to Christ and to be a citizen of His kingdom, to rededicate your life as a citizen of the kingdom of God, to live out those principles, to share that good news, maybe to surrender to God's call on your life in ministry or serving through this church in some way. Or maybe God is leading you today to unite with this church family to help us to pray for God's kingdom to come and to do the work of sowing the seed. Would you stand and come as God leads?